Genesis 38, and this is a chapter I suspect uh, you usually skip in Sunday school class when you were a kid, right? You know, in Genesis, you probably didn't know his ark and Adam and Eve and, and all that. I'm guessing when you did Joseph, you didn't do this part of Judah's story. Um, now, remember what we said last week about this is um, the Bible, if you read it as literature, that is, it's a well-crafted, well-written story, um, or poetry or whatever it is. I showed you that in First, uh, First Kings 8, the chiasm, right? It's written in ABCBA format. Song of Solomon is the same way. We're going to look at Song of Solomon a little bit on Sunday night. The whole book is chiastic, uh, and it's fascinating. I won't bore you with it now. Um, but if, if, if you will just read the Bible as if a very gifted, may I dare I say, divine storyteller crafted it, I think you'll fall in love with the Bible more. We have an example of this here. You remember that um, the prominent story that we are in is Joseph. However, the Bible will interrupt its story or it'll slow down the narrative to, to have a greater impact on the story, right? So think about what happens when you were growing up, uh, you were watching your favorite cartoon or, or show, whatever it is, and it ends with a cliffhanger, right? Isn't that the absolute worst, best thing in the world? With streaming now, right, uh, I bet you stayed up a little late one night because of that cliffhanger on episode four. And you're thinking, well, there's only, there's only a couple more episodes. I, I, just, I just need to know what happens, right? So, so you're going to watch the other one. Um, uh, two, two older shows I like, one is Smallville and another's West Wing. If you watch those shows, okay, you'll find that the first few episodes and the last few episodes are the best. The middle ones you could probably skip. You may not know who fell in and out of love, but you could probably skip those. If you got the beginning and the end of the series, why is that? Because they're going to end on some sort of cliff, cliff, right? So in West Wing, uh, spoiler alert, the president's daughter gets kidnapped. And that's the end of the, se- of the, of the uh, uh, season, right? And you've got to wait six months, whatever it is, to find out what's going to become the president's daughter, you know, something like that. Um, and uh, uh, so you, you're just... Every, you know, you're so, so enticed. I think that's what you've got going on here. We just saw the son of Jacob, the promised seed of Israel. His sons sold one of their brothers into slavery and sold him into slavery through the Ishmaelites, their cousins. So you have the act of slave trading, which the Bible condemns, but it's, it's brothers and cousins engaged in the activity. And then the story pauses, and we get this bizarre, difficult story to read uh, involving sexual exploitation. And then it picks up again in chapter 39. So when you read the story, read it as a storyteller would write it, that that we all want to know what came of Joseph down in Egypt. We all want to know that. But... We have to go through this first. There's more going on here than that. Let me give you just three reasons real quickly. Why is this story in the Bible? Okay. And why is it here in the Bible? Real quickly, the first one is development. Uh, We've already sort of hinted at this. Um, Although Joseph's story is the dominating narrative of the final chapters of Genesis, Judah is is another storyline that is developed. We saw it at the end of chapter 37. Remember that Reuben wanted to save him, and then all of a sudden Judah took a lead. Let's sell our brother into slavery. Well, it's not an accident then that we get a narrative about Judah. 
is the writer's developing the story of Judah as he takes a more leadership role among the tribes, or among his brothers. Because this becomes the story of Judah among the tribes of Israel. It is from Judah you get the king of Israel, David, Solomon, and later the Messiah. Okay? So I think, I think some of that is, is what's going on here. Also, let, let the reader just be encouraged. Um, the Messiah comes through this line. You know, There's some good news there. Uh, it's called grace. The second reason is comparison. Think about what you have here. Again, the Bible's really well written, uh, a book. Chapter 38, you get a story of sexual exploitation and the victims it, it creates. Chapter 39, a story of sexual exploitation and the victims it creates. However, the difference is who's doing the exploitating. Chapter 39 is the story of Potiphar's wife exploiting Joseph. And as a result, Joseph is accused of exploiting Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. Remember, he goes down into exile. What you get here is sexual exploitation, not from a woman, but from a man. Um, and it's several men, right? So Onan is going to die because of this. Ur probably dies because of this. It's, it's the closest reason we have for why God judges him. Uh, Judah will do this. He will exploit a prostitute and not pay or anything. And uh, he thinks he's gotten off scot-free. Tamar will exploit Judah. A better word here would be deceive. Because remember, Jacob is the deceiver who, doing all this deception, his father-in-law is a deceiver, his, his wives are deceivers, and now his kids are deceivers. Now his granddaughter-in-law proves to be a deceiver. So you can see that, that what we have is Judah gives in to this narrative of exploitation. Joseph does not. So we get this comparison here. Um, the third reason we have here is promise. Uh, that is to say, the chapter ends, spoiler alert, with the births of uh, Perez and Zerah. Perez will become the ancestor of David and obviously the, the Messiah. Um, so um, this sets up the uh, story arc of the Bible, which is the story of offspring. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So we're looking for who is the seed of the woman. And so here we have a set of twins, much like Jacob and Esau, much like um, although not twins, Isaac and, and Ishmael, uh, we get the story of twins, and one of them will be the promised seed. This is a, a story arc that we've seen. Um, and we see from this line, we, we get not just Perez, we get Rahab, right? Remember the Canaanite harlot? We get Ruth, a Moabitess that comes in. So um, we are to see here the, the continuing story of promised seed comes through broken people. That's, that's the story of grace. All right, let's start in verses 1 through 11, um, which is the, the first part of this. Um, I'm not going to read all of this, but just, just to get it started. It came about, verse 1, at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain um, Adullamite whose name was Hira. Uh, Judah saw there, there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, so she conceived and bore a son. He named him Ur. Then she conceived again, bore a son, and named him Onan. She bore still another son, named him Shelah, and it was at Kezib that she bore him. Now, uh, let's pause there. Notice here the story begins by connecting this with the Joseph exile, right? So it's not just, hey, let's just tell you a story. There is a connection here. Judah has just come from sending his brother in, into uh, slavery, and now we get chronologically this, this tale. Sometime later, uh, fairly soon after, we get this. I want you to notice the language uh, in verse 1. I got my New American Standard Bible because I left my ESV because I'm teaching New Testament homeschoolers. I left it in my car. So um, the, 
NASB has departed with a footnote. ESV says uh, went down or goes down. Is that probably what you have? Something like that? Went down something. So you remember that we're looking for the language of exile, right? Now, this is geographically true. He went down into the Can- among the Canaanites. Remember, Genesis is all about don't marry Canaanite women. Guess what Judah does? He goes and marry, finds him a Canaanite girl. But notice he went down to do it. It's the type of exile. It, it's, it's a, it's a, a parallels the Joseph story. Yeah, Don. Okay. He took her and went into her. So yours says married? Mine says took her. Yeah. Well, the word, it is the word took, and that may be an interpretive thing. I would assume it's marriage to take and to, and, and to although in this story, sleeping with someone is not the same thing as marriage. Don, what do you have? The message says married. Okay. Well, if the message says it, it has to be true. <laughs> I never doubt Eugene Peterson. Um, I, I do want to highlight the word took, though, however, whether it's a, a legal marriage or not. Uh, but this has been a pattern in Genesis, don't do this. Um, but the word took is the same word um, you get in uh, Genesis 3 that Eve took of the fruits. It's the same word to describe Shechem's rape of Dinah. He took her for himself. It's also the word used of David taking Bathsheba, right? So, so that's not an accident. What does Judah go? He goes and he takes for himself forbidden fruits. Don't go marry the Canaanite girls. Guess what he goes and does? Remember Esau, I believe it was Esau, married a Canaanite girl. And that's where you get the Edomites. So don't go do this. And that's exactly what Judah does. So we, we already know this is bad. Now, Judah marries, I put down in my notes, married. So, um, but he's with this Canaanite woman, has a couple things, her name. The text doesn't give us the name immediately. In verse 12, she's called the daughter of Shua. In Hebrew, that is uh, Bath Shua, be it Shua. Um, and this becomes her, her name. In 1 Chronicles 2, uh, her name is given as the sons of Judah, Ur, On, and Shelah. These three, Bath Shua, the Canaanite. Um, so... Um, that's the name we have. Now, her row, uh, we, we, we talked about uh, taking. Uh, he, he took her for, for himself. Um, and she has three sons, Ur in verse 3. Um, his name means awake or rousing oneself to activity. Do with that whatever you want. It is interesting. His name is awake, but he dies in judgment. So uh, he is the only son of Judah named by Judah. The other two boys are named by the Canaanite woman, uh, which is significant, isn't it? Um, uh, he marries Tamar, who, who we're, we're about to meet, right? She's a central figure in this, in this chapter. The problem is he's a wicked man. You, you start to get that in verse 6. He's wicked. God judges him. Um, now, we're not told why God kills him. In judgment, he's gone. We're not told why that is. I think the reason is probably the best guess we have is for the same reason God judges Onan. And I believe that is sexual exploitation. He, he takes Tamar and he wants the benefits of a relationship without the responsibility of, of a sexual relationship, okay? So here's where we get the ugliness of, 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 of our world is just laid bare in the Bible. Men, the ideal 
situation for a man is the benefits of a sexual relationship without the responsibility of one. The solution to that is a little thing we were just talking about called marriage. Christians have always understood if you want to protect women, uh, create a culture that encourages marriage. Marriage protects women. Because what you've done is you've given men a burden to carry. Um, I'm still this from Driscoll. Men say that, uh, uh, Driscoll says that men are like diesel trucks. The more burden they carry, the better they drive, right? Um, and so what marriage does is, is it's, a, it's, it's, it's an understanding this will become a sexual relationship. But with that sexual union is certain responsibilities. And part of that is family, children providing, protecting, all of that sort of stuff that comes with it. Men need that. Otherwise, you are encouraging men um, to chase after uh, their natural base nature. And you get what you see in our culture right now. When we convinced women that marriage was a, a slavery, we played right into the hands of men. And now women are hitting 30, 35, and they realize being single with a great career isn't as fulfilling as they were told, right? So I think Ur is judged probably because of some type of sexual exploitation. It doesn't say that, but given the text, because um, that's what all the men do, do to Tamar. The second son, verse four, is Onan. The name means strong or vigorous. Other than a few genealogies, he's never mentioned again. He gets this brief narrative here in verses 8 to 10. Um, his significance is how he treats Tamar. So when Ur dies, married to Tamar, the responsibility under uh, Leverite law is that the next older brother takes responsibility for her and that the children that, uh, that they would have through their union goes for the, uh, to, to carry on the name of Ur. So Onan doesn't get any benefit from this. He just only takes the responsibility. Right? Now, if you think that's a, that's a weird situation, it's odd to us, but it was set up to protect women, okay? Not, not to, so that men can have multiple partners, but to protect women and to protect a household uh, for longevity. Um, the story of Ruth and Boaz fits this category. You remember that, that Ruth is a widow? And you remember Naomi says, you all need to go back home because even if I had children, you're not going to wait 15 years, right? No, you're still young. Go find you another man. You remember that Ruth is redeemed by a kinsman redeemer, Leverite law. And you remember there was another kinsman who was a closer relative. Boaz had to go through him, through the law, to get Ruth. Now, it's a love story, but it reflects this Leverite law sort of system. And it, it shows up. Uh, in, in various places. Uh, I'll, for the save time, I'll skip this later. But you remember this, uh, the, the little parable that the Sadducees give Jesus? And they say, okay, Jesus, help us this theological riddle, okay? Uh, a woman is married seven times, seven brothers. One after another, they all die. Apparently no one called the cops. Um, because we all know how women kill their husbands, right? It's poison. You want to talk about evil. <laughs> women poison their husbands. You studied this. Men are aggressive, and so when they commit murder, it's usually through violence. You women, you nurse your husband to death. I mean, that's evil. That is evil, and it's there in the Bible. Anyways, so there's seven brothers, and, and they ask, right? Here's, you got seven husbands married to this woman. In the resurrection, who is she going to be married to? Well, the foundation of that little theological parable is the Leverite law. 
right? That, that if, if, if there's no children or anything like that, the next brother takes responsibility, okay? Um, the third is uh, Sheila. By the way, God uh, executes Onan as well because uh, he does not live up to his responsibility. Uh, you can read it for yourself, verse 8 to 10. He, again, he, he, wants the, he wants the sexual relationship without the responsibility that comes from being one flesh. Again, you could read it for, for yourself. Verse three, or verse five, rather, we see Sheila. His name means a petition or one who has been drawn out from the womb, something like that. He is never mentioned again outside of genealogies in the Bible. He really, the only role he plays in the story is he's there, he's supposed to marry Tamar. But Judah is starting to think, you know, I've done lost two sons to this woman. Do I want to lose my last one? And so he, he deceives Tamar. Now, it is worth mentioning here, what you have is a father with three sons, like Adam, Cain, Abel, and Seth, like Noah, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. In those two accounts, you have one bad son, two good sons. Here, you have at least two bad sons. What does that tell you about Judah? Probably has three bad sons. What does that tell you about Judah as a father? Um, Now, you'll notice there in uh, verse 5, she's she bore still uh, another son and named him Sheila. It was at Kezib that she bore him. Now, who cares? It tells us that they're in Canaan, yes, but who cares about this? Well, Kezib comes from the Hebrew word to lie or to be deceptive. It's an ironic foreshadowing of what's about to happen. Judah will deceive Tamar by sending her off and never sending Sheila. In fact, when Tamar shows up in town, she assumes Sheila is with them. She's about to get married again. Then she turns around and deceives Judah. So we, in this place name, we, we're thinking, oh, more deceptions coming. But didn't he break the law, Judah? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's her logic. But that's also what Laban's daughters do. If dad deceived Jacob, and he deceived us with Jacob, we can deceive him. I mean, this is those who live by the sword, die by the sword sort of thing. Yeah. But this is what happens when you are motivated by vengeance, anger, bitterness, and envy and covetousness, is you start to rationalize this sort of behavior. Right? We are far east of Eden in this chapter. I mean, there's just nothing good in it um, outside of grace. Um, so story of Tamar, um, verse six, um, uh, Judah is going to arrange a marriage. Uh, Tamar means palm tree or date palm. The word was used to describe someone of graceful stature. By the way, this is used later on in Song of Solomon, right? Chapter seven, that's the spicy chapter. Uh, your stature is like a palm tree. I say, I will claim the palm, I, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Um, that is not the spicy part, but it's part of it. But um, notice that the, the idea of a palm tree was, was to be graceful and, and, and whatnot. Um, so uh, we've already said God judges Ur. He dies. Uh, that's verse 7. Uh, so with the death of Ur, uh, Tamar is now given to Onan to, to conceive. Um, and uh, I, I do want to highlight one, one verse, verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, notice that language is, is it's his, his brother's wife. Legally, that's the situation because all the rights and property are going to go to the family of Ur, not own it. That's the part he doesn't like. Um, um, 
would not be his, right? So, so he, he did. The language there of whenever he went in, obviously it's a, it's a reference to intimacy, but the language in the Hebrew says re, it's repetitive action. That is to say, it, this isn't something that happened one time. He exploited her sexually without taking the responsibility for the union. That's the big idea we're supposed to get from this. Tamar is the victim here with these two brothers and with Judah. You have men who are wanting to do that to a woman. Later, you have a woman, the master's wife, who wants to exploit her slave for her own sexual satisfaction, okay? And as a result, he is victimized by that activity. It's, it's, it's the inverse of it. So what you have is, when it comes to sexual exploitation, uh, we are equal opportunity employers as humans. Men and women do this all the time. We, we've seen this in the Proverbs 8 and 9, haven't we? That the Bible has women are, uh, are prone to deception, men are prone to seduction. So who's exploiting who in that scenario? It's women exploiting men. We know this is true. We know this is true. And the Bible lays this out. Right here in chapters 38 and 39. Um, well, uh, in verse 11, um, uh, verse 10, uh, God kills Onan. Verse 11, Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. And he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like, the, like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Judah is so far away from intimacy with God, he assumes Tamar's killing his sons. And it's God doing this. What does that say about Judah? You know? um, so, um, by the way, what you have Judah doing here is essentially the same sin as Ur and Onan. It is his responsibility to see to it that the line continues, Ur's line continues. And he is willing to exploit her, deceive her. Well, beginning on verse 12, um, the story changes. Now it goes from Tamar's exploitation to now Judah. Uh, notice verse 12. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. So that's Judah's wife, we're, we're, we'll, we'll say she is. When the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite, it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to, Tamar, to Timnan to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up. She had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. And for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, uh, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. There's just so much here. Um, it, it's, it's, it's an awful passage, but so much here. Notice contrast. We go from a twice widow to now a widower. So Timnah loses two husbands. Judah loses his wife. But I want you to notice the language here. It's, it's there in uh, verse 12. Nasby has, when his time of mourning ended, ESV is more literal here. It says, when uh, he had been comforted. 
Uh, I don't know what your Bible says. The word is comfort. Now, that makes no sense in English. When he was comforted, what what was talking about, um, widowers would have a time of mourning. We've we've talked about this, right? So one of my complaints about modern culture is we don't let people grieve. We think, okay, you buried your loved one. You need to be at work tonight, okay? You know, I can't give you two days off. Um, That's not healthy at all. But but you'll notice here that Tamar is she's dressed as a widow until she takes on the dress of a harlot only to go back to the dress of a widow. She's expected this to dress and act and mourn the loss of her husband until she, she's given Sheila, which is part of her motivation. She was robbed of Sheila. She is expected to stay a widow the rest of her life until that circumstance changes. Judah, on the other hand, he's given a limited period to mourn. At which point he's free to, as we'll see, uh, or as we see here, where the sheep shears are. That's where the men go when they get crazy. Okay? By the way, that's where Ruth makes her move with Boaz. That's a difficult passage. Good luck with that, right? And it's because there's too much drinking, not enough uh, wives to calm the men down, right? And, you know, to say, that's enough, honey. Um, but, but men uh, do foolish things at those sort of things, as Judah does here. Okay? However, that word comforted is an important word in Genesis because we saw this, the story of Isaac. Remember, Isaac, Isaac's mom dies, Sarah, and he goes through this period of grieving. But then he meets Rebekah, and the text says, I think I, I should have it up here. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, took Rebekah, and she became his wife. He loved her. So Isaac was, here's that word used to describe Judah's period of mourning. He was comforted after his mother's death. Now, what is the source of his comfort? The love and intimacy with a wife. You see what the text is setting up here. In the, in the context of marriage, intimacy is a type of comfort. What Judah does is he takes it outside of marriage, which he's lost, and he seeks comfort in the arms of a harlot. He's become a Canaanite. That's why you don't marry Canaanite girls. Yeah. I think, too, the Bible kind of sets up an excuse for his failure. He says his wife died. It gives context, yeah. Yeah. It looks like it's a little more context. Yeah, yeah, well, they're not saying, look, his wife died, she'll never know. It's not saying that. Like, we're to see what he does with Tamar as evil and wrong. Like, the Bible condemns harlotry. Well, I'm going to tell you, a man who loses his wife suffers from loneliness. It's very deep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ministry to widowers is significantly more complicated and difficult. The reason is because ladies are more social. You're much more social. Widows congregate. That's the way women function. That's a gift that they have. We we men don't. We don't have that. Men are more, 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 I'll figure it out on my own. As we joked about this last week. Why do married men live longer than unmarried men? One of the reasons is because wives insist they go see a doctor. <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Because men will rationalize in their head, I don't need that. I'm fine. I'll be okay. I just got to toughen it up. Uh, ministry to widowers is really, really tough. Really tough. Um, now, it's not justification for what he does, but I think most men can understand how it is he gets there. That, and he, he's not a godly man. <laughs> 
I mean, he has no moral compass to, to keep from doing this. It's wrong, just simply wrong. It's exploitation. He's exploiting Tamar like his two sons did. And he's deceiving her by not bringing Sheila along with him for the purpose of, of, of this relationship. Um, well, she veils herself, right? That, that reminds us of the story of Jacob with Leah. Remember, she was veiled. He was also drunk. So we see some parallels too. The two bargain with each other. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the bargaining. Um, she wants Judah's cord and staff. So he offers a certain pay, payment, right? And she says, well, uh, how do I know you're going to keep your end of the bargain? And so she asks for a cord and staff. These are items of identification. That's really all that matters. Uh, that later she'll say, oh, I, I'll tell you who it is that, that, that wanted my service. And she brings out his driver's license, okay? His, his, his library card, um, his social security card, right? She, she brings that, and that's what he's given away. Now, I'm reading this as a happily married man who I've never been to a point in my life where this is a temptation for me, okay? And so I'm trying to think logically about this. What sort of fool would do this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don, the other Don? Yeah, yes, yes. There's, there's a, well, an old show before where, where a guy does this and he, you know, the, the, the harlot, you know, it gives the sob story why she's in this job and he foolishly gives her a, his business card. Call me, maybe I'll get you a job. That business card's what got him in trouble. Jerry Springer, that is the perfect example, right? His, his career's over with, you know? Um, it's lady wisdom versus lady folly. Women are prone to deception, as Tamar is here. Men are prone to seduction. When men are seduced, they lose their minds. Men think logically until you get a situation like this. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, Solomon abused hundreds. He may have been married to them, but he, he certainly wasn't around. Yeah, him. yeah. Political exploitation is still exploitation. Yeah, yeah. so we, we looked at Proverbs 8 and 9, which I just absolutely loved. I'm probably going to do that at the Capitol sometime in the future. Um, read Proverbs 7. It sounds like a man who learned the hard way. Read Ecclesiastes 1 to 3. He literally says, I've learned all this the hard way. You know, the thing that gets me about the Old Testament, it seems like when we were you, we were trying to clean it up. Yes. I mean, the thing when David went out, The Bible, the Bible is, is American evangelicals um, struggle with passages like this because we don't want to believe the heroes of the Bible can do this. We don't want to believe God talks that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we skipped a few verses for a reason, you know, reading it. Um, but in us sanitizing the Bible, we rob the beauty of grace that God takes this ugly, terrible situation, and somehow his grace wins in the end. And we, we spent three or four weeks on the genealogy of Jesus. And one of the things you do is you look at these stories. Here's Perez. 
he is the he is the son of parents who are father and daughter-in-law who she herself pretended to be a harlot to seduce him you mentioned Jerry Springer he'd eat that up when he had a show Well, that would be an option, Don. Right. But, but, it, but here, it's God. Not that God is like, okay, now let's have a prostitute in here. Right? Just tolerate that. But rather say, despite that, my promises. So we're, we're going to look at, Lord willing, uh, Sunday morning, Solomon saying, he looks at the history of Israel and he says, God has kept his promises. This is the evidence of it. And those promises included a guy named, like Abraham who nearly turned his own wife into a harlot. Isaac, same thing. Jacob, what a mess. Judah, what a mess. America, what a mess. Yes, yes. That's why it, if, if, you let, if you let it be an ugly text, the darker it is, the brighter the gospel is. Um, so, um, well, she concedes, verse 18 to 19. I, I really want to get through this whole chapter one, one run. I hope that's okay. Um, uh, yeah, she conceives. She's going to end up with twins. Spoiler alert. Okay, verses twenty to thirty is is the birth birth of the kids, um, uh, and you know the the uh, Judah is caught. For verse twenty, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend Adullamite, this is Mark Driscoll's thing. Like men shouldn't have friends like this, right? Read read uh, Proverbs. I did a whole sermon on it, right? Your friends determine your actions, your future, all that sort of stuff, right? Don't get a friend like this who's going to be paying your bills for who you're sleeping with. That's get better friends. Um, anyways, uh, Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road of the Enaim? Now, it's interesting, temple prostitute. What does that tell you about the religion that Judah is perhaps engaged in? Either he was indifferent or he was actively engaged. Don't go marry the Canaanite girls. Um, but they said uh, there has been no temple prostitute here. Of course, these guys, it's just common for them to exploit women. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. You know what he just did there? He says, I don't have to pay. If we can keep this under wraps, only you and I know about it. It's, just, it's more exploitation. Verse 24, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. Uh, pause there. Tell me if you can think of a story where a man commits sexual sin and that person conceives and that person is told a story a parable if you will and his reaction not realizing he's condemning himself he says kill him story of David and Bathsheba isn't the Bible incredible David is of the line of Judah like father or like son, like great, 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 great grandfather, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It really is amazing. 
And yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mark. Amazing how righteous he was. Let's burn her. This is, this is human nature. We all want justice until we're the ones standing in front of the judge. We, we all want strict punishment. Um, Aren't they telling us that also that there's no harlot in this part of the land that they probably did that when they found harlots? Huh? They probably purged the land of harlots, so when they told him there's no harlot in this area. Who would purge of the harlots? The people of that area. Well, the Canaanites didn't purge of temple prostitutes as part of their worship. Now, Saul did of the witches until he went out and got one. Oh, it's funny how that happens. Uh, you know, you never know when you need a witch or a harlot. You know, boy, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? But what <laughs> you get in the text. Um, so, anyways, okay, so. Um, um, Anyway, I, I, I'll do all that. I'll skip all that. Um, Judah wants her burned. Now, in the ancient Eurasian world, burning, uh, so adultery was a capital offense. The reason is because marriage is sacred, right? So, so you've got to protect it. That way you put a severe punishment on adultery. Remember the story um, uh, in John 8, the woman caught in adultery, the stoner, right? Burning is an option. It's an extreme option. So Judah is quick to go to the extreme. Like David, bring me this man and I'll kill him, right? And so Judah's ready to light her on fire. And that is when he discovers the truth. And that's, that's where we left off. Um, so verse 25, uh, she confesses, yeah, I'm pregnant. Um, and here is the cord and the staff, right? The ring, the cord and the staff. Verse 26, Judah recognized them, uh-oh, and said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Sheila. He did not have relations with her again. Now, um, it's, it, again, it's, it's funny. He doesn't want to burn her now. And he knows he's been exposed. And remember, his actions with his friend was to keep this from happening. No one else needed to know. And in his moment of vulnerability, look, look what, is, what has happened. And it's interesting that he, 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 he wanted death. Again, the, the story is similar to a Garden of Eden in that um, right, he takes, you know, but then, then there's the story of death that follows. But most read what Judah does here is genuine repentance. And there's a couple of reasons to see that. One is he confesses he is guilty. And so it's no longer about what Tamar did to me. His, his confession is what I have done to Tamar. That's repentance. It's not justification. Well, I was a widower. I was lonely. You know, my wife has died. Rather, he says, she's more righteous than me. I'm wrong. Now, what the text is not saying, what Tamar did was righteous, but that if we understand that harlotry is evil, Judah is saying, I'm below harlotry. And he, and he gives specific reasons why he's wrong. I deceived her. I robbed her of what was hers. And I didn't do what God had called me to do. That's repentance. And then you'll notice there he says, he never slept with her again. So, so here it's, it's, he realizes his sin and he broke from it. Most see this as... Um, as a, a, a good image of, of uh, repentance. Um, so in verse 27, 30, we, we get their birth. It came about at that time she was giving birth, and behold, there was twins in her womb. Uh, moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, 
this one came out first. All that is, you know, the, the firstborn is so important. But it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was, he was named Zara. Okay. Um, here is yet another set of twins in Genesis. So you're, you're thinking these two ain't going to get along, right? Um, by the way, I want you to notice the, the parallels here. Uh, this, is t this is purposely written to show the marry each other. So in Genesis 25 uh, is the birth of um, Isaac and Esau. When her days to give birth completed, behold, there were twins in her wombs. And then we see Perez and Zerah, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. It's the same, same language. Um, and so we are, we are supposed to see the connection between these two and the previous set of twins. Um, and that is a theme throughout Genesis. Siblings, they do not get along. Um, sisters and, and brothers. Um, so um, some have pointed out there's some parallelism. You have the death of two brothers, and now you have the birth of two brothers, and Tamar is the connecting tissue of it. Um, that may be reading into it, but it is interesting parallelism. So, all right. So just as Jacob and Esau, the conflict between Perez and Zerah starts in the womb. Um, but you, you remember that in the Bible, um, the story, or in Genesis in particular, the story of the promised seed goes through a single brother. So you get, um, instead of Cain, it's Seth. Uh, then it's through Shem, right, after Noah. Then it's Abraham and not his brothers. It's Isaac and not um, uh, Ishmael. It's Jacob and not Esau. And now it's Judah, not Reuben, because Reuben's the Otis. And now it's Perez, not Zerah. And you can keep going through the Bible this way, right? It's David, not his older brothers. You know? um, and uh, Solomon, not his older brothers. This is a common thread that God often favors those that the rest of the world says shouldn't be favored. Um, so you remember the story of David, um, man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. Um, so we, we get this here. Let me just, just uh, finish the story of Perez. Perez doesn't play a significant role in the Bible at all, uh, or Zerah, um, mostly genealogies. However, there's two genealogies. You, can, you, you know where this is going. Um, two worth pointing out. The first is the story of Ruth. Remember, Ruth is a similar story where you have a widow who she leaves the Canaanites, the Moabites, and she comes into Israel. And she finds there uh, a kinsman redeemer through Leverite law, and they conceive. So there is no deception in the story of Ruth. Um, there is some openness and honesty, and it's a great love story, and all the ladies love it, and it preaches. But it ends with a genealogy because uh, the writer wants you to see that this isn't about Ruth or Boaz. It's about David. Ruth takes place in time of Judges, which is an awful time in Israel. Everyone deals right in their own eyes. So it ends with this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. It's interesting because it could say these are the generations of Judah. Then start with Judah. It starts with Perez. What do we know about Perez? He is the offspring of a Jerry Springer episode. All right? And so, so what, you, what you have is a, is a shattered, broken situation that God was able to bring out a redeeming work. What looked impossible, God made possible. He turned the water into wine, right? He raised the dead. He healed the blind, all of that, right? And we see this in these genealogies. As boring as we think they are, it's so critical, our understanding of the Bible. Perez fathered Hezron, 
Right? You're not going to get a whole lot on Hezron in, in the Bible. Uh, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. These names are on your test. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon, like the fish. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered David. Or Jesse. Jesse fathered David. So, so you see that uh, just as Perez was part of God's providential grace in the line of Messiah, now Ruth is being grafted in. So Tamar is in the place of Ruth, or Ruth is in the place of Tamar. Tamar is a Canaanite who is grafted into the line of Judah. Now you have Ruth, a Moabitess. Remember, the Moabites come from the union. Oh, I didn't even think of this. The Moabites come from the union of incest, a father and his daughter. Now what you have is the ancestral Messiah coming from father and daughter-in-law. So you get the retelling of the Tamar story with Ruth, minus the sexual exploitation, and a retelling of the Lot story with his daughter. It's almost like the Bible was written uh, by God. Uh, so you get that in Ruth. So, so important. God's providential grace. God is continuing to align in unlikely ways. And this, of course, yes, Don? I think what's unique about that, you count the names of Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, Matthew is going to mention Paris. Now, Paris is going to show up in the genealogy of Chronicles and all that. Half of First Chronicles is genealogy. You should read it. Um, but Matthew 1, right? This is genealogy of Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, remember, in Matthew, the, the, the language is fatherhood. Who is Jesus' father? Um, and in Luke, it, it's told from the opposite, son of language. So here you're going to start with Abraham, work your way down. In Luke, you're going to start with Jesus and work your way up because it's son of. Jesus son of Joseph, Joseph son of so-and-so. That's because sonship is the big issue in Luke. That's free. Do with that whatever you want. Uh, we got to go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. It's interesting. And his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. We didn't leave that detail, do we? And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. You can keep going. You see how central the story is? It's an ugly, ugly story. But that darkness helps us to see the light of the gospel, and that ugliness helps us to see the beauty of grace. And that's the main point. See, don't see sexual exploitation. See the cross, where by the means of the death of Jesus and the resurrection, all of, this, all of this is cleansed, which means God can cleanse the most wicked of sinners, even with those like Judah, even those like Tamar. All right. Well, Don, you've been helpful. Why don't you close us in prayer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, cousin of Lonnie here. <laughs>